Hey there, Super Sober Heroes. It's your host, Sober Steve, the podcast guy. And before we jump into today's episode, I want to take a brief moment to ask for your help to shape the future of gay A. Over the years, this podcast has grown and evolved as I've grown in my sobriety. And recently, I've been investing wild amounts of time, money, and energy to find ways to level up this podcast so it can get heard by the people who need to hear it. I want to take a brief moment to check in with all of you, though, to see what you love about the current show and what could be better as I'm growing and moving forward. In the show notes is a three to five minute survey for you to complete. I kindly ask that you pause this episode and take the time to complete it if you haven't already. You are kind enough to give me 20 to 40 minutes of your time each week when you listen to these episodes, and I want to make sure it's time well spent. So please let your voice be heard. Thanks, SoberPod, and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Gay A, a podcast about sobriety for the LGBT plus community and our allies. I'm your host, Steve Bennett-Martin. I am an alcoholic, and I am grateful for my health. As of this recording, I'm 106 days sober, and today we are welcoming a guest to share their experience, wisdom, and hope with you. Welcome to the show, Gabriel. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Now, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience with a little bit of who you are and a little bit about you? My name is Gabriel. I live and I'm from um, Southern California, San Diego. Um, I'm a California boy, born and raised. I grew up in Northern California, just north of Sacramento, about maybe 35 minutes north in a small rural town um, called Marysville. I like to start my my story. I don't I don't go too much into the negatives aspects of my story but i do want to start at the beginning where i've discovered through my step work and sobriety recovery where a lot of my my trouble started so i'm the oldest of three children i have two younger sisters like i said we lived in um, northern california we had a pretty like i like to say idyllic childhood early on that all changed i was roughly probably 14 and up until that point i just i think i had that typical you know country childhood we live you know we just played outside we you know rode bikes all day long summers were just swimming and you know playing outside and you know i, I didn't really know anything about that but in i think the summer before my my sophomore year in high school that all changed i discovered that my father had been having an affair and i bring that up only because it, i've understood i've understood through my step work that everything stems from the trauma that i i i endured as a child and that was very you know traumatic for me because that was the first time that i really understood what that that there were life wasn't perfect life wasn't idyllic like there were it was very confusing for me as a as a teenager. You know, I idolized my father, you know, the typical, you know, he was my hero. And it just very, it very much humanized him for me, but not in a good way. It just humanized me, him because, you know, like your heroes when they disappoint you. And then it just, you know, unfortunately, you know, it was bad for several years. And that kind of shattered like my my childhood in a way. And at the same time, I was also struggling with my sexuality. I I couldn't tell myself, I, I couldn't, I don't know if anyone can relate, but I, I've heard friends say this, like I couldn't even say the words in my Lord gay in my head. I couldn't even think it. So whenever I would go there, my brain, I would just like think, you know, brush it to the side. So anyway, my parents ended up staying together, which, you know, that was a choice they made, but it just felt very, there's a lot of unresolved stuff. I don't feel like we really ever talked about it as, as children, as a family, you know, my parents made the choices they made, but I just felt this like sense of like, wait a minute, are we, you know, 
I was ready for like us to like me and my parents to split up, but they didn't. And we didn't talk about it. It was very odd, but it was my first like model behavior about don't deal with the stuff, just brush it aside and move forward. So fast forward a little bit in 1997, I had moved back home. I had graduated high school and I moved away, moved out, moved back home because, you know, I couldn't afford it. <laughs> and I moved back home and, and long story short, we, there was a natural disaster in our hometown. It was a pretty bad one. There was a major flood in our, in our hometown. And it was a last minute. It was like a sudden thing where we lost our home overnight. Like we was, we were there watching TV and, we got the emergency alert system and then we had to evacuate. We lost everything. Like we just had, we left with the clothes on our back and the vehicle we drove away in. So overnight we were homeless. And that again, very traumatic. I experienced my first panic attack as a, I was, I think I was 18 at the time. Um, just this uncertainty of like, oh my God, what do we do now? Like everything was gone. After that, I feel like my parents definitely reconnected in a really loving way. And that was beautiful to see. But unfortunately, a year later, like almost to the day, my father died suddenly of a of cardiac arrest. So that was very like, this was now three, the third time in about maybe four or five years where like in an instant, my life completely changed. And it planted the seeds for me of always waiting for the other shoe to drop, always waiting for something to happen, never feeling safe. And if I did feel safe, waiting for it to end. Um, I felt very cheated at times. I felt very like, you know, all this stuff keeps happening. Why us? Now, the sexuality comes into it for me because, you know, and I just uncovered this in, in, in therapy throughout this whole time. I didn't have any modeled behavior or anyone to look up to in as far as how to live a gay life. You know, I didn't come up to my father before he died. And I was struggling with my sexuality after the, the affair, after my, after the flood. Now I just had to do what I had to do in order to, to cope. But for some reason, my brain told me, because I didn't, ha I wasn't talking to anybody about this. I felt that this was punishment for being gay. This was punishment. Like, this is what happens when I have these thoughts. So I took a lot of um, ownership for what was happening. By the time the flood happened, I hadn't acted on my, on my sexuality. After the flood, I had. And then my dad died. So I felt in my brain, I upped the ante, the universe corrected course. I didn't really call it God. I don't think I just was like... This is what I get for acting out. So I would like suppress my sexuality. I would, um, if I had thoughts about other men, I would just like hate on myself. It was really self-loathing. So after that, I, I just, I, I quit school after my dad died. I wanted to take care of the family. And this was another theme that starts for me is brushing everything to the side. And now that I, now that I was an adult, it was, let's just put everything aside. Let's just work busy, busy disconnect don't think about don't feel so i was working three jobs at one point trying to you know help rebuild the house that never happened eventually my mother said you know you need to live your own life just you know at this point i had come out she said I, you know you you got to live your own life go do that so i did and my brain just my, my great idea was i'm going to move to san francisco and live in the castro <laughs> And I will say this, I moved there, it was right after 9-11, it was like 2000, late 2001. And 
I went there because I felt free for the first time in my life. I felt like, okay, here's permission to go out and live my life. I went to San Francisco. I, I had my first relationship, gay relationship. I had my first gay friends, platonic gay friends who didn't want anything from me other than my friendship before like living up in Northern California. When I, I was, my sexuality was very taboo. It was very behind closed doors, you know, having relations with people that I had no business doing that with when I was, you know, 18, 17 years. So this was like, I felt like an adult. I felt like part of a community and that was good for about four years. And unfortunately, one day I had hooked up with someone and they had some, they had some drugs. And at this point I was drinking a lot. I didn't recognize that it was a major drinking problem, but in hindsight, I think I, I was, again, I was trying to cope and also be part of the crowd. For me, the thing that took me down and took me out was definitely crystal meth. And that's what, again, I was so naive when it was introduced to me. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was like a cigarette or something. It was that, that naive, bless my heart. And I kid you not, but then, and I had a good job. I was working full time. I was able to live in San Francisco and go on trips and, Within nine months, I had lost my apartment. I had lost my job. I was sleeping in Dolores Park. I was staying at homeless shelters and just lost. That didn't last too long because that couldn't, I, I'm not made, made to, I'm not built to like live in the streets or, you know, I'm not, that's just not me. So I did ask for help. I knew people that were in recovery. I went to my first, my first meeting I went to was in 2000. And, no, 2005. I found an NA meeting and I didn't want to go to AA because for whatever reasons, I felt very willful and they wanted to do my way. I went and I remember I was sweating. I was just like, so I was coming down. I was hungover and I didn't like it because the NA meeting was an hour and a half. <laughs> so I wasn't really sitting there listening to the message. I came home and I, came, I was staying with a friend and I asked him, I said, he was in AA and I said, okay, because he kept saying, I'll take you, I'll take you, I'll take you. And I said, finally, I said, okay, please take me. And I got sober in San Francisco. I did, I did go to treatment there. I did a 30 day treatment and then I did a 90 day treatment and I loved it. I loved AA. I loved, I felt like I found the community again that was even more, more emotionally connected because we all have this commonality of sobriety and recovery. You know, I'll speed it up a little bit. I ended up leaving San Francisco because I couldn't afford it anymore. I found the biggest mistake that I made is that I didn't stay in the fellowship of AA after I left San Francisco. I immediately got into a relationship. I met a man who would become my husband. We, I definitely, it was a very codependent relationship. I see that now, but there were good years. He had two kids. So I raised, helped raise two stepchildren for 10 years. We were together for 10 years. Um, but then when things started getting bad, it got really bad. You know, there was infidelity, there was, you know, drug use. There was a lot of a lot of toxicity. And then he left. He left. We, we broke up, we divorced and he left. I was in the, and I'm holding on like by a thread at this point. I wasn't in the rooms of recovery, but I was trying to, you know, not do anything. I was trying to stay sober. Well, I was going through a bitter divorce. It wasn't, it wasn't amicable. And then I lost my job and I lived, I worked in property management. So I lived where I worked. So I also didn't have a place to live. And then the following month, my mom, who had had chronic lung disease, fell ill um, and was in ICU for five weeks, six weeks, and ended up um, passing away. We had to um, take her off life support. So in the span of three months, I'm divorcing. I lost my job. I'm homeless, and I lose my mother, my last remaining parent. 
And, you know, when that happened, I honestly felt so alone. I felt so lost. I felt like the last connections that I had, like my parents, my husband, they, they're all gone. My stepkids are all gone. So I just went full throttle into drinking and using, drinking and using. Like I drank more than I'd ever drink. I use more than I ever used. I feel like I was on a path to just like kill myself, you know, slowly or swiftly. I don't know. But something told me that I didn't want to do that. So I I started dating a gentleman that um, ended up being in recovery. It's one of those God shot moments. We went on a, our second date and he tells me, oh, by the way, I'm in recovery. So on and so forth. So we he took me to a meeting and then I got back in the fellowship. And thank God for, for him. Um, we're not together anymore. We were together for about three years. And, you know, he helped me reconnect with the fellowship here in San Diego. I ended up coming to treatment in San Diego multiple times. I had, multi, you know, varying degrees of success in sobriety in the last, like, three or four years. That relationship ended because I'd relapsed another time, so many times. And I fell into this hole again. I realized that I had also recreated these codependent patterns with this relationship without even realizing it. So when that relationship ended, I did the same thing I did before, which was I went back to, to drinking and using heavily. That was in 2019. And I, so I'm right now currently in North County, San Diego, where I got sober again in San Diego. It was in San Diego proper, about 30, 25, 30 minutes south of where I'm at. So I made the decision that the, the pandemic really, that was another thing. The pandemic was as probably mo a lot of addicts and alcoholics, it was a perfect storm for, it was in a negative way. I, no one had to work. I didn't have to work. I had nowhere to be. I could be on a screen. I could just like fake it. And I was using every day. And finally, I just like, I can't do this anymore. I knew I was going to die if I kept going. So in December of 2020, I came up here into North County, um, San Diego. I got away from my triggers. I got away from my past. There's a lot of history there. I'm very connected to the fellowship in San Diego. But there's also a lot of expectation that I put on myself. I feel like I needed to get away where no one knew me. You know, I know there's a saying in the, in the program, you know, geographics, like moving away to get away from your problems. But I feel like moving away to come into treatment and work in the solution, I think that's different. And that's how I make the distinction. And, you know, I, I did four months in this program. I ended up getting hired by the treatment center I'm, I'm, I, I completed, which is a blessing. I never thought that would happen. But unfortunately, in June of this year, I did have a small slip. But the difference is this time is that I got right back on the horse. Like instead of being out for months because I was ashamed and embarrassed, um, I was out for like two days and I called, you know, my support team and said, I need help or I need to come back to the, to the fellowship. I need to come back. So today, I believe today is 82 days sober. And I'm really, really proud of that time because when I came back after this slip, I had to go back to detox. I had to go back into treatment for one month to the program that I just was working for. So I humbled myself. I humbled myself and I did whatever they needed me to do. When I got out, I got my job back, but I didn't get the job that I had back. I started, I had to do overnights for a while. I had to work graveyard shifts, which I did whatever I had to do to stay sober that day. I did whatever they asked of me because what I was doing wasn't working. So where I'm at today is I'm just, I'm really focused on staying connected, working my program, taking suggestions, 
finding balance, being easy on myself, and doing the work, continuing to do the work in, in AA with the steps, with my sponsor. Because if I let up, you know, I could definitely fall back really easily, quickly. So that's where I'm at. Thank you so much for your share. I really appreciate it. I similarly related that the very first time I ever tried meth, I thought that I was smoking marijuana. So (laughs) I was tricked into it in in a way of where I just didn't think to ask the right questions. Yeah, very much so. Yep. Yes. Now uh, you helped like in your share, kind of explain how your sexuality played a role in your addiction, but how has it played a role in your recovery? Good question. I would say that I feel like sometimes if this makes sense, I feel like doubly blessed, doubly grateful because the gay community is, you know, very, you know, when we get together, we get together, we band together, we go for causes and we have this commonality. You know, I say a lot of times, like I've heard people say, and I agree, like, you know, if I could change being gay, I wouldn't because I really, I love the, the, the family that we connect. Cause a lot of us don't, you know, we don't have relations with our family or like mine are gone and we have chosen family with recovery i'd say generally the people that i am in recovery that are like my core they're also gay i did i was so so blessed to go to a in san diego i went to a treatment program that is specifically for the lgbtq community that's a rarity in the united states i did go there three times because i just kept (laughs) slipping up but to go to a treatment program where I could 100% be myself and who I was was celebrated. And it wasn't one other thing for me to have to overcome. I did so much work in that program. Um, I worked with the sex therapist. I worked, I worked at getting over the trauma and the, the self-loathing and the internalized homophobia I had with myself and really just became proud of who I was and celebrated that. And, you know, I'm just really grateful that, you know, the people like the gay, I mean, I have straight people, friends, straight friends in the fellowship as well, but there's just, for me, something special about the gay community, the gay sober community. Um, you know, I'll also, I'll also add that I didn't put in there is that I've also been a part of creating two different sober um, roundups. I was part of something called the gay and sober um, men's conference in New York city. And we did three conferences there before COVID and then I also helped create one here in San Diego called Sobriety in the Sand for gay and sober men. So again, it's just the fellowship, the, the reaching out to like the community that maybe um, feels left out in other, other rooms or other areas. Yeah, I, I understand. I, we actually will have, it'll be a couple episodes back when this comes out. We had Christian on to talk about GSM. Oh, yes. I know Christian very well. Yes. yes. It's, it, I, I found it's, 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 a, yeah, it's already a small enough world in the gay community at times, but you add in the the, yeah. the, the sober or people in recovery yeah. gay community and it's even smaller. Yep. But I've also, oh, found, yeah. I've also found that there's something even just more beautiful about it. I was already proud of my sexuality before getting sober, but finding fellows yeah. in the fellowship has just been one of the most amazing, rewarding experiences. Yeah. Speaking about community, I found you on Instagram where you are recovering out loud. So how, how do you feel social media has helped you in your recovery? Yeah, this question or this topic comes up a lot for me because, you know, as you said, you know, I've, I've definitely put myself out there and it's been a journey for me because I feel like I've had to really become very comfortable 
and self-assured in myself because in the past I put myself out there and then I've been vulnerable and then I get hurt when people don't respond a certain way. So what's important for me is that I do live out loud. I, I'm very vocal about my sexuality and my, and my addiction and my recovery. But I also have to be very mindful of what are my motivations? What are my intentions? Am I doing this because I want a pat on the back? Because I want the social media you know, world to validate me? In the past, that's very much been the case. And that opens me up to be, to be disappointed, to be judged. So now when I post, I, I honestly do ask myself, what, is, what are my intentions? A lot of it, it's today, I sometimes use social media as like an online journal that people can see. I definitely, I share my journey. A lot of people don't get that, honestly. A lot of people think I'm being too much. I'm putting it out there. Who, no one needs to know your business. But, and I don't know if you can relate, Steve, but I feel like for me, I've gotten so many amazing messages privately with people telling me, oh my God, thank you for sharing that because I get, I feel that way too. Or I didn't know anyone else felt like that. Like just one person telling me that makes it worth it because I was inspired by people who were very open and very proud of who they are and saying, if you, anyone needs help, I'm someone you can come to. I really try to put myself out there so that it helps me connect with people. It helps me be of service. And I don't put it out there because I think I have to, oh, I'm here to save anybody. No, it's to share my journey, share my story, just like a meeting, you know, people share their experience, strength and hope and the hope that someone will get something from it. I'm just using it on a different platform that reaches more people. And I tell you, I have friends who are like brothers to me all over the world because of social media, because of this conference that I did in New York. The other day, I had a friend do an H&I meeting for me as a speaker, and he's in Hawaii. I just, and also say, the during the pandemic, social media, I'm not exaggerating, saved my life. Because when the world disconnected, I had a connection. I thank God that this happened now and not before any of this technology. Because those there were days where I'm like, oh my God, I don't know if I'm going to make it through today. I couldn't get so stay sober through the day. But I definitely, it was whether it was a, a post on Facebook or private messaging a friend or, you know, I'm a part of a lot of sober groups on Facebook. Like just that little communication kept me going. It was that little tether. I always felt like I was flailing. And then the, the people that I talked to every day, they were my anchor to the real world until I can get back to my real life. And there's people that like, even, you know, during all that, they still check on me every day. Like, how you doing, buddy? Like, you know, I was like going through it. They're like, you can do this. Like with that technology, social media, we wouldn't have had that. I wouldn't have had that. So yeah, it's definitely, I feel like it definitely helped save my life. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, getting sober in the time of COVID was certainly an interesting experience for me, but I've, yeah. you know, my home group's on Zoom in New York. Like, so, you know, it's these exactly. things that I've, yeah. I've struggled finding a group locally to go to, but I have my, my home group and that wouldn't be possible without Zoom and the internet. So I yes, completely exactly. agree. Even like working on this podcast before it came out, I had just had so many like amazing messages that there was like one time mm -hmm. around my 60 days where I was like questioning it all. Like, is it even worth it? And it was like, I was like, well, I have to stay sober for like the podcast that's going to come out. So, because <laughs> right? like, I had already had like a couple people message me being like, oh, I'm, I'm really excited for it. So I was like, I can't let them down yeah. and, you know, help me get yeah. through that hump. 
Yeah, whatever works, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, what are some of the positive changes you've seen in your life now that you are sober? You know, I, I've been doing this recovery thing since 2006. And I like the way that you pose this question because this time in my life, in this shot of recovery, I feel like I feel like I'm finally living my most authentic, true self. Because even in the past, when I've been in the in the rooms, I've had the the crutch of a relationship. That's a big one for me. Is always going back to going finding people to be in codependent relationships with, or whether it's work or whatever, finding something else to find my my value and my worth. Today, the biggest change is that I'm learning to trust myself, trust in myself, know that it's okay to ask for help. And that doesn't make me weak. It actually makes me strong. Being vulnerable is beautiful. I still have my bad days. I mean, I'm still technically in um, outpatient where, I, where I'm living and working, but, no, but I still live a regular life. I just do groups and stuff. And some days are really hard. I just living in this world as an addict, newly sober again, it's, it's tough. It's very tough. But the biggest change for me right now is when those days come, I stop, I take a breath, I ask for help. I reach out to my to my support network, and uh, I just talk about it. I don't push it aside. I don't brush it aside. I don't diminish. That's another thing I used to do a lot. I used to minimize my my struggle for the sake of other people. I cannot afford to do that anymore. So I'm definitely, you know, today the biggest change is putting myself first above all else. Because if I can't put myself first and be okay. I'm no good of use to anybody. And I love to be of service. I love, I love, love being of service. I get so much joy out of it, but I can't do that if I'm not taking care of myself first. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, if you were to give one piece of advice to someone who is either sober, curious, or newly sober, what would it be? Oh, goodness. I said this the other day to someone who um, was struggling and it just came to me. I just said, you know, please don't be afraid to reach out to help because as much as it may not seem like it in the world, there are actually so many people who have so much to offer. You just have to reach out your hand and accept it. And I speak from experience because I always felt like I didn't want to reach out to people because I didn't want to inconvenience them. I didn't want to, I didn't want to bother them or be a burden. And it's all this negative self-talk I told myself that I wasn't. And basically it just boils down to me feeling not worthy. So that's what I'm working on these days. So anyone new, I just want them to know that the help is there. The support is there. We get it. People get it. Like, you know, there's nothing that I've ever said in a meeting or on Zoom or anything that people go, oh my God, like, what's, what's he talking? No, we, I always get the nods and, you know, oh yeah, we relate. Like, people get it and people want to help. You're not a burden. You know, you're worth, you're worth being helped and asking for help. Yeah, I, I agree. That was something that I struggled at first with was like sharing in meetings because it was just like I didn't feel like my words mm-hmm. had value. And then like the more I started sharing now, that's like, you know, they can't get me to shut up sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I've been accused of the same thing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> what are some things that you do to help you stay sober? So today to stay sober, I definitely, number one is balance. Actually, I'm not going to rank it because that's probably not the right thing to do. One of the things is balance, self-care. I go to meeting. Like I said, I'm, I do outpatient groups, which are similar to meetings. They're just not facilitated like a, like a secretary. It's just a facilitator. And then there's a topic and we all share. So I do three, three outpatient groups a week. I do 
five to six meetings, 12 step meetings on Zoom a week. And when I say self-care, I I dis- I do my best to just disconnect, not do anything because that's another trap I fall into is doing too much. So I just, you know, where I live, it's very peaceful. So like where I'm at right now, I'm in my backyard and I could just like lay out here and read a book or listen to an audio book, whatever, and have fun. Like, honestly, like I think especially being in treatment and having just been recently in it. It's like we live and breathe recovery all the time, but also it can be fun. So just yesterday, you know, I went with a friend and we just walked on the pier and you know, we got donuts and just like had fun and like, you know, just find joy in my life. I like a motto. I'm big on sayings. And I like to say that every day I try to find my happy. And for that, that means listen to my favorite music or, you know, I'm a goofball. So like, you know, put on my headphones and like, dance to Britney Spears in the, in the bedroom by myself. Like that's my happy. Yeah. So whether it's big or small, whatever, as long as I, I find my happy every day, at least once a day, then I think I'm doing a good job. Excellent. Yes. And that's, that's a great a mantra or a quote to live by is just to find your happy. Yeah, exactly. Now I mentioned having found you on Instagram, why don't you promote yourself and share with the listeners where they can find you if they want more Gabriel. Yes. Excellent. You can find me on Instagram at, at the dot Archangel Gabriel. It's kind of long. So at the dot Archangel Gabriel. And it's also the same handle on TikTok. Okay. Excellent. I'll be sure to also type that out and put it in the show notes. So anyone who's listening can just scroll up to see it. And thank you everyone for listening. Uh, Please rate and review if you found this information helpful. If you're interested in sharing your story like Gabriel, getting involved with the show, or just saying hi, you can email me at gayapodcast at gmail.com, and I'm on Instagram at gayapodcast. So make sure you're following us wherever you're listening so you can get new episodes when they come out every Monday and Thursday. And until that time, stay sober, friends.